Thanks so much for coming. Um, it's Monday night, and that you're here shows you are uh, a person with excellent energy, ability to keep absorbing ideas and opinions after a very dense, excellent program. And I want to thank our panelists, especially. They've been um, called upon for the last three days constantly for their insights, for their research, for their presence. So thank them for coming on this Monday evening to share their time. Um, and we understand if, if you feel a little, a little woozy throughout it. Um, I wanted to make the note, this is a, a recorded session, a video recording. So consider that as you ask questions that this will be captured. I'm going to read the description of this, this call. The title of the theme is, What's Love Got to Do With It? Critical appraisals of love as a civic value. This year's plenary sessions are organized around the theme of revolutionary love. In this panel, we sample such a notion of love. In so doing, we take up a conversation in which some AAR members have raised concerns about Christian privilege in a scholarly organization dedicated to critical approaches in the study of religion. So we bring together a diverse group of scholars descriptive and normative to consider love as a public or political or academic force. In particular, we ask about the public nature of our work. Whose conception of love prevails in public scholarship on religion? Are there analogs outside of Christianity to which the theme of love speaks? Is love a universal value? What's at stake among scholars of religion to have a named annual theme? Our plan is to have each of our speakers give about five to 10 minutes of remarks. They're then gonna have a conversation among themselves. And in the second hour, we'll open up for questions and conversation with you. So panelists are David P. Gushy from Mercer University, Russell T. McCutcheon from the University of Alabama, Amy M. Hollywood from Harvard University, Sarah L. Tentawi at Evergreen State College, and Arvind Sharma from McGill University. Thanks again to you and to the panelists and Let's begin moving in this direction through our comments. Thanks. Major echo. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm amazed anyone's here. Thank you. Um, my title is uh, Perhaps Not Love. In 1981, Placido Domingo released a duet with the late John Denver entitled Perhaps Love, written by Denver 
It was composed during his separation from his wife, Annie, also the inspiration for 1974's Annie Song, in which she is said to have filled up his senses, like, among other things, the mountains in springtime and a walk in the rain. But by the early 1980s, with a divorce on the horizon, Denver's writing is far more modest, for the duet isn't quite sure what love is. Oh, love to some is like a cloud, to some as strong as steel, for some a way of living, for some a way to feel, and some say love is holding on, and some say letting go, and some say love is everything, and some say they don't know. I know that you all know that lyric. Here, in a nutshell, or better put, in a pop lyric, I think we find the problem with this year's presidential theme. For this word love is a malleable local term that despite being used by a wide variety of people to talk about their own daily lives, has, I would argue, no analytic utility. For it can be defined in such a wide variety of possibly contradictory ways, does it mean holding on or letting go? Then it that it proves of no use to the scholar who's trying to offer empirically applicable generalizations about cross-cultural human behavior. Uh, presumably, and I hope I'm not incorrect, what we see ourselves to be doing in as much as we have attended this conference. So as I see it, the problem with finding this category used as it is this year by our field's largest professional association is the all too common failure to understand the difference between, on the one hand, descriptions of how some people happen to talk about their lives, and on the other, the requirement for scholars to develop a theoretically driven specialized vocabulary capable of making those claims curious by re-describing them. In other words, we are not here to adopt just one group's way of talking about the world, but instead to study that very talk itself alongside other ways that other people talk and act and organize. Yet our academy often fails, I think, to entertain this difference because I would argue doing so undermines some of its ambitions. For limiting ourselves simply to studying those who talk about the possible civic value of this thing called love, as opposed to taking love as a given, and then debating its, quote, uh, merits as a public or political force, our charge, would undercut, I think, the common assumption that the work of a scholar of religion is omni-relevant, for we seem not only equipped to diagnose and cure what ails the city, but as exemplified by a recent conference theme, we have what it was called a role-specific duty to help solve climate change. Now, I think we come by this failure honestly, a failure in knowing our limits. For scholars are themselves human beings, of course, and thus often tempted to elevate their own common sense view of the world into a self-evident cross-cultural universal. I think here of the tourists' mistake of eagerly seeking out local words for what they themselves already know. What's your word for avocado, they might ask. The mistake is in failing to entertain that not everyone might arrange and signify the world in the same manner. Not everyone eats avocados. Do you know the story of the Boston entrepreneur Frederick Tudor and his early exports of that New England natural resource ice to Martinique? A shipload of it first arrived in remarkably good shape, it's reported, in February of 1806, but the Caribbean locals had no interest whatsoever in frozen water, so most of it simply melted at the dock. As scholars of religion, I find that we often make the same error, since many of us presume that we're studying an eternally enduring and deeply significant element of the human, Sure, not everyone calls it religion, so some of us now allow that the word itself can be historicized, but we then go to the archives, we then go to our field notes, looking for a better word for the, to name that mysteriously universal it that we somehow know to be present, despite our nomenclature not quite putting it into words. So why wouldn't we claim to have valuable insights to help solve everything from global warning, warming to social woes? 
for our relevance apparently knows no bounds. Case in point, scholars of religion at this very conference, we've seen plenty of panels, now even claim to be XTF expertise to study those who insist that they don't even have a religion. So yes, I love my dog. Who wouldn't? Have you seen her on Instagram? But I also, please find me on Instagram. Uh, but I also love my wife, and I, yes, love tortilla soup. I had some this weekend. But which of those idiosyncratic uses of this term will stand as a value in service of the city? Based on what, or should I say whose, normative criteria will we make that call? Not long ago, I saw a montage of now President-elect Donald Trump's campaign speeches, where he proclaimed his love not only for his country, but also for the old days, his company, Building Buildings, That Sign, NASCAR, People Who Faint, His Protesters, the military, China, the Hispanics, the Saudis, Israel, the evangelicals, the Mormons, and the poorly educated, to name but a few. Now, do we embrace his incredibly nebulous category love and use it to make the city great again? Or do we dismiss his claims as not quite a proper use of the term? For thinking back to those opening lyrics, some might read his list as a politician's insincere expressions, while yet others might hear them, hear them and then cheer, lock her up. What I hope is becoming evident is that just because many of us use this term as we go about signifying our world, it does not follow that it necessary ha necessarily has utility for those who study how people signify their world. That many in this room, or roughly one in two nationally, likely have little difficulty understanding Trump's claims as mere rhetorical devices useful in swaying a crowd, suggests to me that we are not incapable of taking the step towards seeing all such uses of this ill-defined sentiment love as being engaged in the same practice, though to be sure for widely varied effects, competing effects, contradictory effects. A step that we might take if we are prepared to hear our familiar uses as being just as curious as those that strike us as alien. But that's a step that we find difficult to take, I think. For when others project their local as if it is eternally relevant, we easily identify their ethnocentrism. When we look, for example, back and see the Victorians doing it, we offer harsh rebukes for how they condescended to others by universalizing their own particular. However, that many of us as scholars fail to recognize similar problems when proposing the idea of love as having academic utility suggests to me a failure of the very critical thinking that we in the humanities often say that we teach to our students. So I want to be clear, it's not as some have complained, I think, that this year's theme carries with it undisclosed Christian bias, one that might be corrected by bringing others to the table, perhaps such as myself. Rather, its proposal is evidence, I think, of a failure to understand that, unlike the familiarity of campaign slogans, scholarship requires us to talk about the world in counterintuitive ways. Sure, it's more than likely that most, if not all of us here today, at some point or other, have talked about being cozy. But that does not mean that we ought to elevate this term to the status of a cross-culturally universal heuristic device so as to say, study how coziness can somehow save the city. And, and I don't mean to be silly you know, saying that. That's a folk taken for granted thing that we all talk about. <coughs> Excuse me. That some seem unable to make the same argument, draw the same limits when it comes to that crazy little thing called love, not to mention the no less local but equally universalized category of religion, is therefore the interesting thing to me. For some familiar concepts seem to be too important to us to see them as anything as being local, to see them as working for us, for our purposes. 
As I said to a colleague not long ago, this is all pretty good fodder, I think, for the cognitive scientists among us, inasmuch as it seems that we can't help but see the familiar everywhere that we look, much like those faces in the clouds that they tell us we're compelled to see. Although I'm no cognitivist, I also happen to be interested in this topic, why so many people claim to see something they call religion wherever they look. I've argued that the subtle yet important shift from studying religion to studying the discourse on religion would help to address this problem by reinventing the field possibly as a cross-cultural study of signification systems. At the University of Alabama, we're trying to do just that. And despite the challenges that come with anyone working in a competitive institutional setting, we've had some successes. But when our largest professional association proposes that our collective scholarly focus should be on how love can transform the world, well, such representations slow our progress by reinstilling a model of the field that's more akin to Iliade's new humanism than what, many, than what many scholars of religion are actually up to today. Now, I realize that I've spent my brief time only on one half of the theme. The other part is, of course, the adjective revolutionary. In keeping with my opening, then, let me end by drawing on yet another pop lyric, John Lennon's 1968 B-side to Hey Jude, uh, credited also to McCartney, revolution. As some of you likely know, its opening line goes as follows. You say you want a revolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. Much like the folk notion of love, revolution is slippery as well, since our shared wish to change the world doesn't necessarily mean that we all want to change it in the same way. The bitter divides in this country's uh, recent elections should make this painfully evident to anyone. And so it strikes me that inasmuch as we are gathered here as scholars of religion and not in terms of the many other possible identities that we each surely operationalize from time to time, few of which we all may actually share, I think we should be a little more modest. We should entertain the limits of our expertise and our relevance and leave changing the world for other occasions. For as Wendy Doniger recently argued with regard to what she describes as conservative faith-based groups infiltrating our profession, quote, scholars of religion must find the courage to defend the field and preserve its independence in the face of these threats, unquote. I find this to be very good advice, also when applied to incursions from closer to home and from the other end, though well-meaning they may be, of the political spectrum. For it shifts the terrain, this alternative way of viewing it, to conversations about just what is the field, challenging us to address why we even think that our profession might have tools to save the city. For taking the recent election seriously, I think means acknowledging that a fair percentage of the population actually thinks that the city needs to be saved from people like us. Thank you very much. Well, good afternoon, everybody. So I speak to you uh, as uh, a president-elect of the American Academy of Religion, and that's kind of the place where I'm going to start. Uh, I found the invitation uh, to, to participate in this panel most intriguing, and uh, the nature of the panel itself uh, and the subject even more intriguing. And when you look at the description in the program book, there's a lot of different things going on there, and so there's a lot of different ways uh, to get into the subject. Um, I'm hardly going to talk about love at all. I'm going to talk about the American Academy of Religion and how it does what it does. 
The nominating committee of the American Academy of Religion selects candidates who are put up to vote to become part of the presidential line. I knew almost nothing about this process uh, before they came my way uh, last year. It must be an incredibly difficult job choosing two people for the vice presidential um, line from among 8,500 members. No one can know everyone. The organization sprawls far too much for that to be the case. So the nominating committee three years ago uh, nominated two candidates, one of whom was Serene Jones, and then two years ago nominated Eddie Glaude, and then last year nominated me, and so the three of us won in three years running in that sense. All three of us are Christians, though from very different backgrounds and using very different methodologies. That clearly makes some of our religious studies folks uncomfortable. I definitely get that. Uh, no one wants to feel excluded. No one wants to feel subject to somebody else's hegemony. It's interesting, I often felt excluded and subject to somebody else's hegemony many years ago when I first started coming to AAR. It is true, though, that approximately 30% of the members of the American Academy of Religion are doing something like what you might call confessional or normative work, coming out of or operating in a religious tradition of some sort. If that 30% got to fill all of the presidential line offices all of the time, that would be terribly wrong. But if those 30% got to fill none of the offices any of the time, that also would be wrong unless the AAR chose to exclude that percentage of its membership that does confessional or theological work, and probably, in the end, to shrink to an organization roughly two-thirds of its current size. It looks to me like this year gave us different choices and broke the string. This should be happy news for those who were concerned and just for the overall balance. Uh, there have been some concerns, I would say, about the nominating committee, and those concerns have been addressed this year, I hope, in ways that are satisfying. Presidents in the presidential line have very limited powers, really. Among those limited powers is deciding what to speak about in their plenary address, deciding who else gets to speak in three other plenaries, and then naming and naming a theme for the year. The theme is entirely up to the president. It is also entirely up to all program units how much they might like to connect to the theme. The president has no power, none, to mandate adherence to, or even attention to the theme. It can be happily ignored. Serene Jones chose the theme of revolutionary love. Uh, Eddie Glaude chose the theme of religion and the most vulnerable. Speaking of Serene's theme, this can perhaps be described, perhaps, as a distinctively progressive liberal Christian theme, perhaps, though neither the themes of revolution nor of love are owned by Christians or by progressives. Perhaps I am terribly biased because I now share in the, in the power of the presidential line and have had a chance to choose my own theme, but I believe that what the president chooses as a theme is entirely up to the president. It can perhaps be viewed as a modest perk of office that maybe begins to offset the hundreds of volunteer hours devoted to AAR over this three-year period, including many miserable weekends in horrible hotels that Jack Fitzmaier picks out. So if the issue is who the nominating committee is putting forward for presidential line choices, then the problem is with the nominating committee, and the solution is to ask the nominating committee for a more representative range of choices. And I think that's legitimate. 
if the issue is with an unwanted theme from a particular president, then the solution is to gladly ignore the theme and go about your business. Now, partly out of sensitivity to concerns about the theme, when I developed my own theme, I sought to construct a theme that could not be understood as a, a kind of distinctively owned by or reflective of a particular religious community. And so my theme is religious studies in public, the civic responsibilities, opportunities, and risks facing scholars of religion. Uh, I, I would say that the criticisms and concerns about themes definitely informed this one. I, I sought to speak to everybody who could call the American Academy of Religion as their main academic home. And the, the, what I'm attempting to uh, explore or invite people to explore in their theme is, what is it that religion scholars do that gives them um, opportunity, maybe even responsibility, to intersect with the public or various publics? And so I, I, I suggest that our work often uh, takes us beyond the academy and beyond the classroom to relate, for example, to media, to the corporate sector, to government, to law, to the general public. And that sometimes when we do these things, we attract attention that either people appreciate what we're doing or people very much dislike what we're doing. Wow, it's a sign, okay. It's a sign. See that? Cue fall of sign. Um, so, so what I'm hoping to do in my, in my presidential year is in my plenary and in sessions to, to talk about some of those uh, awkward intersections when we relate, for example, to the media or when religion scholars relate to government. Uh, or when we relate to the general public or other uh, sectors in which people care a lot about what we have to say, uh, sometimes uh, appreciatively and sometimes quite unhappily. Um, I'm also wanting or proposing that we pay attention to the differential levels of opportunity, responsibility, and risk that might be faced by scholars who are in different situations, such as contingent and untenured scholars as well as scholars of minoritized status or community. I hope, therefore, that the theme that I'm proposing offers an avenue in uh, to people uh, from a variety of places in our, uh, in our collection of approaches and uh, to scholarship. So, so that is uh, my response to, to the discussion. I do know this, that nobody likes to feel excluded and uh, that AAR seeks to be a big tent in a lot of ways and sometimes succeeds and sometimes fails. And in my brief time uh, in leadership, I hope for it to be as big a tent as possible. Thanks. I can't see. Like these blinding lights. Uh, first, thanks to Mara for um, 
for putting uh, us together and for asking this question or these sets of questions. Um, I'm really appreciative of it and for the chance to um, speak into some of the questions. Okay, so short form, what's love got to do with it? Love is civic virtue. Um, my really short paper is not much and it isn't. Love doesn't have much to do with it. Love is not a civic virtue. Um, but I will elaborate. Uh, I wasn't going to, but I was like, oh, okay. They, it, it's being filmed, so I guess I have to say something. Okay. Um, Hadwick, who was a, a mid-13th century uh, Christian woman, uh, wrote a long poem about the seven names of love from which the line, hell is the seventh name of this love wherein I suffer. It's background for what I want to say. Uh, the New Yorker, after the election, published an issue in which they had 16 responses to the election from a variety of different kinds of public intellectuals and journalists. Of the 16, four mentioned race as an issue in the election. Three who are people of color and one white Jewish Russian emigre. Otherwise, the issues of race, racism, and white supremacy were remarkably absent from the responses. Toni Morrison is characteristically the strongest voice in a piece dripping with sardonic irony. And she names the love of the USA as a love of whiteness, a love of whiteness that is at the very least what is the USA for white people. And she points to the Christ-like sacrifices white Americans have made to save their country in a piece that's titled Mourning for Whiteness, and I'm going to read a bit of it. This is a serious project, Morrison says. All immigrants in the, to the United States know and knew that if they want to become real, authentic Americans, they must reduce their fealty to their native country and regard it as secondary subordinate in order to emphasize their whiteness. Unlike any nation in Europe, the United States holds whiteness as the unifying force. I'm not sure I agree with that line, but let's let it stand. Here, for many people, I agree that whiteness is a unifying force for America. I'm just not sure it's not for East European countries. Here, for many people, the definition of Americanness is color. She goes on, after a couple paragraphs, to say, in order to limit the possibility of an untenable change in which whiteness would no longer be the marker of Americanness, they, and, and to restore whiteness to its former status as a marker of national identity, a number of white Americans are sacrificing themselves. They have begun to do things they clearly don't want to be doing. And to do so, they are, one, abandoning their sense of human dignity, and two, risking the appearance of cowardice. Much as they may hate their behavior and know full well how craven it is, they are willing to kill small children attending Sunday school and to slaughter churchgoers who invite a white boy to pray. Embarrassing as the obvious display of cowardice must be, they are willing to set fire to churches and to start firing in them while the members are at prayer. And shameful as such demonstrations of weakness are, they are willing to shoot black children in the street. To keep alive the perception of white superiority, these white Americans tuck their heads under cone-shaped hats and American flags and deny themselves the dignity of face-to-face -face confrontation training their guns on the unarmed, the innocent, the scared, on subjects who are running away, exposing their unthreatening backs to bullets. Surely shooting a fleeing man in the back hurts the presumption of white strength. 
the sad plight of grown white men crouching beneath their better selves to slaughter the innocent during traffic stops, to push black women's faces into the dirt, to handcuff black children. Only the frightened would do that, right? These sacrifices, sacrifices made by supposedly tough white men who are prepared to abandon their humanity out of fear of black men and women suggest the true horror of lost status. She ends with a reference to Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. And she writes that Faulkner understood the love of whiteness as the love of America, the love of America as a love of whiteness, better than any other American writer. In Absalom, Absalom, she says, incest is less of a taboo for an upper-class Southern family than acknowledging the one drop of black blood that would clearly soil the family line. Rather than lose its whiteness once again, the family chooses murder. White people will kill white people. They will kill all non-white others. They will even kill themselves, sometimes literally as an Absalom Absalom, or their souls for the white America that they love, for the America they love, which is always implicitly unstated and yet pervasively, visibly white. Unlike many white um, liberals and leftists or progressives, whatever we want to call ourselves or I want to call myself, at least in the academy um, and in the New Yorker, um, I, uh, I've got people on every side of this question. I was going to say these are my people, um, and that's not fair because I've got people on every side of this question. But when I talk to people, and I've been talking to people in the last six months, it's alarming to me the number of people who I work with um, and who stand uh, in similar subject positions to me as a professional who seem not to know anybody who voted for Donald Trump or was going to vote for Donald Trump. So the New York Times has to go to a far town in West Virginia into the coal mining country to find this exotic creature, the person who voted for Donald Trump. And they put demeaning photographs on the front page of the website, at least of the Times, of a overweight, fake, you know, dyed blonde, frizzle-haired, cigarette-smoking woman and say, these are the people who vote for Donald Trump. And all of this is in the name of empathy. We need to understand that their coal mines are being closed and that Hillary said she was going to keep the mines closed and Trump promised he would open them again. And that's why they voted for Donald Trump. And the, the elitism, the I can't even, I can't, it, it so effectively uh, uh, angers me that it's hard even to talk about. Um, the elitism and the um, othering of those whites who are like that as opposed to who whatever is supposed to be the voice of the New York Times or the voice of the many, many people who wrote in the New Yorker, um, white Americans who wanted to insist that whatever this election was about, it was about economic injustice. It was about those who felt left behind. It was about a people to whom we on the coastal elites have no connection and must have empathy for. And it's in response to that that I say, 
No, I mean, this is my family, right? Um, I, I, I know people, you know, I have people in my family who voted both ways, um, who occupy different sites of the economic spectrum, um, and, that, and that to try to characterize um, and bifurcate internal to whiteness, uh, the good whiteness and the bad whiteness, is in no way to undermine, is in fact to undergird the white supremacy upon which, in my view, uh, much of this election uh, rose. So I say, you know, these people, the people that Morrison is describing with this dripping, sardonic uh, irony uh, and anger, um, they're my people. And I love them. And I want, metaphorically, I hope at least, only to kill them. I want to find a way to help them to see that they're killing themselves. Average life expectancy in this town in West Virginia is 55 for men and 62 for women. The coal mines are killing them. And yet they want the coal mines to stay open. I want to find a way to help white Americans break the hold of white supremacism, to break the hold of an idea that to be an American is to be white, and to be white is to be an American. I want them to see that they're not only killing themselves, literally, the average life expectancy in my family right now is 57, maybe? but that they're also killing the America they purport to love and that they're killing the future of all of us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you also Tamara for organizing this. I really appreciate it. So I'll just say a couple of things up front. Um, first, this is one of the hardest presentations I've ever had to prepare. And I, I <laughs> it's taken me a while to figure out why it's been so hard. Um, it's difficult to think about what love could mean at this moment of uncertainty, fear and upheaval, but I think what's really making it difficult for me is the ways in which I'm thinking about how love can foreclose this moment of awakeness, recommitment, and uprising. And I will talk a little bit about that. So I've explored why I'm worried that the concept of love, whatever that means, and let me pause here to say that I'm not talking about this topic with respect to the chosen theme of this year's AAR or of um, any sort of institutional issue. I'm actually just taking the concept of love, revolutionary love at its face for our purposes here. So um, I'm, I've had to explore why I think that love, whatever that means, um, I'll come back to thinking through that, but in some sense, as traditionally conceived, would somehow damp down the spirit of revolution that I firmly believe we now need to inhabit. And I'll just say that straight up and I'll explain why. I fear, that a con I fear a concept of love that blinds us to the realities of the dangers we face, one that excuses racism, xenophobia, homophobia, and Islamophobia, and one that overly focuses on excusing the sentiments and behavior of those who hold these views 
while at the same time silencing or marginalizing the voices of those who are and will be the victims of those views. To do this would very quickly take us away from any reasonable definition of love, in my view. Sadly enough, um, I found the best way of illustrating this on Instagram. <laughs> uh, I think I'm, my students are getting to me. But there is a, um, a meme, I'd like to share a, a meme that one of um, a student wrote. She wrote, don't fight hate with hate is an example of subtle gaslighting where our legitimate hurt and anger at the injustices we suffer is being equated to the bigotry of, and abuse of our oppressors. Being angry doesn't mean you are being hateful. It means you love yourself enough to get upset at your own mistreatment. And this is sort of the spirit that I am worried that a kind of superficial, in my view, conception of love could paper over at this time. Um, for other reasons, I find myself feeling penned in by this discourse of love. Um, I know that it means something important and beautiful in the Christian tradition, and I have been the recipient of incredibly kind and exemplary behavior from colleagues who, who inhabit that ethos, and I, I deeply respect it when I see it. Um, at the same time, as a scholar of Islam and as a Muslim, I'm acutely aware of historical examples in which love has, quote, unquote, love has functioned as a cover for violence, has wrought havoc on the colonial and post-colonial world I study in the Muslim-majority world, in which millions of people have lost their lives and land, in, in much, in, and in some of the gaslighting sense that I describe above. I also note the presence of a book displayed in our AAR book exhibit um, which is about how to convert Muslims to Christianity. As a woman who considers herself bicultural, both American and Egyptian, I'm acutely aware of how love as a concept can be used to justify and excuse domestic abuse. I am aware of how love can be used to silence the righteous anger of the Black Lives Matter movement or of those who refuse to recognize Donald Trump as our president and reject and resist his entire administration as I do and I, I believe that people should. Um, frankly, as a Muslim, we, have, um, we already know what the plan is in terms of reinstating, um, and I'm, I'm gonna take my time to actually put on record what this is because I think a lot of people don't know. There's a program called the NSEERS program, the National Security Entry Exit Program, which was first developed by George W. Bush, um, in which at that time it was characterized as 20 Muslim majority, 20 countries, 19 of which were Muslim majority, one was North Korea, which is a total red herring in this context, had to report to their local federal building and register themselves with the government. Um, 40,000 men did this voluntarily. About 20,000 of those found themselves in deportation proceedings based on minor visa violations, and there were zero terrorism convictions from that program. It was discontinued in 2011. The Department of Homeland Security said that it was now redundant because there was enough of a database. There was no more need for information. There's a huge, several, several databases, what, what are called dirty databases, meaning that all kinds of names are on different databases now. 
So this is a program that's already been discontinued by the security forces um, in this country and that Trump has now said is, Trump said one of his advisors by the name of Kobach, who's the Secretary of State of Kansas, same person who developed the stop and frisk um, uh, policy for Latino immigrants in Arizona and also has implemented a policy in Kansas where you have to show a birth certificate or a passport to register to vote. The same individual is now on Trump's transition team and it wants to bring back what he calls NSEERS 2, except that it won't be by national origin, it will be strictly by religious affiliation. M meaning that if you're from a Muslim majority country, you have to register. And um, I think that uh, unfortunately many people agree with me that this is a prelude to all Muslims having to register in the United States, regardless of your citizenship status. So I reject this administration. I encourage Muslims not to register. And I believe that that is a loving thing to do, <laughs> however you want to um, define love in this context. So I guess my point there is that, you know, I hope we, if, and so if I'm, I'm hearing my fellow panelists really um, not want to take the, the, the term particularly seriously, but insofar as we do, I'd, I'd like to really define it. Um, <clears throat> I did want to talk a little bit about, I mean, I did do a lot of thinking about what the word love means in the Islamic tradition. Um, it's, it's different, of course, than the Christian theological tradition in which love as a, a verb and a noun has um, a, a central relevance. In the Islamic tradition, you know, I think, you know, love is, of course, one of the names of God. Love is one of the ways in which you fulfill your mission on earth, which is to worship God, to stewardship of the earth. I mean, I could, um, and uh, right actions, in a sense. And I could, I could sort of bore you with medieval philosophers who, um, who develop these concepts, but I don't think I'll do that now. I will say that there are at least eight different definitions for love in Arabic, and I'd like to tell you what they are. One of them is ishq, which is the love that entwines two people together. Um, um, let me make this appear so I can actually read the Arabic. Another one is shagaf, uh, love that nests in the chamber of the heart. Another is hayim, a love that wanders the earth. Uh, another is thayim, a love in which you lose yourself. Wala, a love that carries sorrow within it. Sababa, a love that exudes from your pores. Hawa, a love that shares its name with air and falling. And finally, gharim, a love that is willing to pay the price. So I'd like to concentrate in our particular moment on that last concept of love. Um, what, is, what does it mean at this point to pay the price? If that's a form of love that's sacrificial, I think now we finally move into the revolutionary part of the, of the construction, revolutionary love. Um, you know, I think I've, I've really sort of actually already said <laughs> ways in which I think that we need to imbibe a kind of revolutionary spirit at the moment. Um, I'll also say something else about the Islamic tradition that I think um, maybe informs. I mean, it's, it's been very difficult. I'm not a the, I'm not a imam. I'm not a religious scholar. It's, I'm a person uh, that's a scholar of religion that has a pretty idiosyncratic relationship to Islam. So I don't know if what I'm saying is informed by... Um, scholarly 
um, you know, a, a, it's very, this, this panel is asking me to tease out a kind of like subjective understanding of Islam versus a scholarly one, which I'm not used to at the AAR. But, um, and perhaps because Muslims perhaps aren't on panels like this very often, I'm not sure. But um, in any case, God is understood as Al-Rahman Al-Rahim, which is the compassionate and the merciful. And the second part of that construction implies some kind of human accountability. That yes, while God is ever compassionate, in order to earn that mercy and compassion, there's actually something being asked of you. And so when I think about what that is that's being asked, I really reflect on the fact that Islam has a very highly developed legal tradition for a reason. And I've been thinking about that legal tradition that's very, very, you know, um, sort of luscious in <laughs> explaining exactly, you know, what needs to be done and how and why. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this question of the law in, in two ways. One, um, I was on a panel earlier in the AAR um, for Shahab Ahmed, who won the best new book in Islam in religion this year, and he's my former mentor at Harvard. And he used to say that law is the only pillar that is left after the ravages of colonialism. So when these kinds of cultures have been sort of wiped out, in order to reinscribe or to re to 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 grow again, you start with the law. Interestingly, a friend of mine told me that his advisor, who's a, who is also an Islamic studies scholar, but a German who lived through the aftermath of World War II, he said the number one thing that needs to happen in the United States right now is that we hold tight to the law. Um, and so, uh, you know, just thinking through ways in which um, we can understand the urgency of the moment and not be complacent and take really concrete action, it would be my humble definition of revolutionary love for what it's worth. Um, thank you, I'll stop there, thank you. I would like to use the time I have to make three observations on love as a civic virtue. I begin with the obvious point that the word love is usually interpreted as a state of emotion. One is advised, however, that ideally, one should not treat the word as merely referring to a state of emotion, but as also pointing to a quality of action or as a state of emotion which then manifests itself in action or as a quality of action. This has an obvious application to civic life in as much as if I love democracy, then I must cast my vote as I believe many of us did earlier in the month. To pivot now to the second point, Relationships in the modern world have a pronounced impersonal quality. In such a world, the discourse on rights seems to be the preferred way 
of securing and safeguarding our interests. Rights largely pertain to individuals, which again confirms the above impersonal manner of relating to other individuals, where individuals are bearers of certain legal rights in an atomized world. But let us now ask the Tina Turner question, what has love got to do with it? I would like to answer this question on the basis of the correspondence Martin Buber had with Mahatma Gandhi. In his letter to the Mahatma, Martin Buber states at one point that nothing becomes a person more than to act towards another person in the spirit of justice, unless it be that of love. I occasionally ponder over this remark, which seems to suggest that although justice is a very commendable way of interacting with other human beings, to interact in the spirit of love is somehow superior. This brings me to the role of love as a civic virtue. Perhaps when we are dealing with oppressed peoples in society, then the attitude with which they are approached need not always be the lens of justice, but that of love as well. Not in the frothy sense of the word, but more in the sense of compassion and sensitivity. And this might be so even when the oppressed groups are not approaching us in their spirit of love. But in, the, but in the spirit of, but in the spirit of justice, for the wrongs committed against them. For it is when we do so that we might feel the need, not just to compensate them for the harm done, but also apologize for what had happened, as the Canadian and Australian governments have recently done to the quote-unquote First Nations. If we talk of truth and reconciliation in such a context, and if truth aligns with justice here, then surely reconciliation aligns with love. I would now like to segue to the third point on the basis of the association of love with the family. In the sense that the preferred idiom when we talk of family relationships is love rather than the idiom of rights. Now, there is a common practice in India adopted while interacting with women in civic life, which is to address a woman whom one does not know in the public sphere as follows. If she is considerably younger than oneself, as one's daughter. If she is visibly of one's own age, as one's sister. And if she is perceptibly older than one, as one's mother. This might seem like a quaint practice, but allow me to suggest that it might help shed more light or at least some light 
on the issue of love in the civic sphere. It could be seen as an attempt to extend the boundaries of family beyond the four walls of the home and into the public square by implying that the value system of relationships which governs family life could probably be extended with benefit to areas of civic life as well. Presumably, if one establishes this kind of familial pattern of relationship with a woman, then that woman or that person can be treated as a concrete being and not merely as a member of the opposite sex, with, the, with probably its own welcome implications for how one interacts with her. The relationship between Mahatma Gandhi and Muhammad Ali Jinnah on the eve of the independence and partition of India in 1947 provides an interesting example of the implications of what has just been said. In the course of the epistolary exchanges during the tense negotiations between them, Mahatma Gandhi once attempted to address Mr. Jinnah as Brother Jinnah in one of his letters. Mr. Jinnah did not respond to this overture and continued to address Mahatma Gandhi as Mr. Gandhi. One could presume that Mahatma Gandhi's attempt to invoke fraternal relations between them was an attempt to hopefully change the parameters of the discourse in a way which would enhance the prospect of a mutually acceptable resolution. In this case, the attempt to invoke brotherly love as a civic virtue may have failed, but it raises the possibility that if we gave greater importance to love as a civic virtue in our attempts to resolve differences, then we might improve the prospect of their amicable resolution. The negative outcome in the example I gave of the correspondence between Gandhi and Jinnah may dispose us to despondency. So let me try to conclude with a more positive example. It is well known that the practice of sati in India was abolished in the British dominions in 1829. The Governor General of India at the time was Lord Bentinck, who had been assured by then by his officers in the field that the abolition of the practice was not likely to cause much disaffection among the people. However, just to be on the safe side, Lord Bentinck decided to consult Rajara Mohan Roy, a leading figure of his times, who was also a vigorous opponent of the practice. So Lord Bentinck asked his aide to ask Rajara Mohan Roy to see him. The, the aide returned and said that Mr. Roy had now retired from public life, was spending in life in spiritual pursuits, and was not available to see him. Lord Bentinck then asked his aide whether he conveyed this request as coming from the Governor General. When the aide confirmed this, Lord Bentinck asked the aide to go back 
And this time, tell Mr. Roy that Mr. Bentinck would like to meet him. Raja Ram Mohan Roy then came, came to see the Governor General. The point I am trying to make is that Lord Bentinck was able to bring Raja Ram Mohan Roy to the table by abandoning the framework of a ruler-ruled relationship, which then existed between the British and the Indians, and replacing it by an appeal to a relationship based among two equals, or if you would permit me, perhaps even brothers, as members of the human family, as two people engaged in a shared humanitarian enterprise. Thank you. I want to thank our panel so much. It's a, it's a wonderful kind of AAR moment to hear this kind of knowledge and analytical purchase, this range of methods of training, different regions that are represented here. So I feel gathered around us, different spaces, individuals, Faulkner, Morrison, ghosts of the relatives in the, the coal mining parts of Wisconsin, future and past AAR presidents. Um, thanks for bringing everybody up here. Uh, Professor McCutcheon's dog, you're here too. Um, so I feel that we can agree that a lot of important conversation came out of tonight and one that doesn't have any kind of zero-sum winner. This wasn't a debate in which someone comes out ahead and declares victory. So thanks for your comments. Um, I'm just going to reflect back, you know, one line each on some major themes that I heard, perhaps ask a question and then ask the panel to speak to anything they heard from their peers they want to talk about. Um, particularly coming from um, Russ McCutcheon, I heard him talk about a kind of category mistake being made between the work that we are trained to do as scholars of religion, what we're paid to do according to our mandate, and uh, aspirations and perhaps self-importance that projects its own possibilities and delusions of changing the world. Um, from David, I heard a discussion about institutional structures, about how authority is produced in, in contingent ways and in um, bureaucratic ways. Um, for David also, the, the re uh, reference to love is not a category mistake. He reminded us this is an organization that's not only of scholars, but disproportionately of leaders of Christian confessional groups. Um, from, from Amy Hollywood, we heard the words of um, Toni Morrison and thinking about the way love and violence and love and white supremacy can work together and the tragedies of that love, of, of the Faulknerian love that will sacrifice its own beloved best friend, its own sister, in the name of, of white purity. And I think the gendering there is interesting too, that the sister represents pure America, pure white America. Um, Sarah spoke um, in ways that educated many of us who continue to need educating about the histories of colonialism outside of America and inside of America, about who is included and excluded from boundaries of civic mutual respect, from um, the ways that the discourse of love can be used to shut down and foreclose righteous anger. And it's interesting in the talks, the comments of both Amy and Sarah, there was a strong and important affective dimension in which love, for lack of a better word, animated certain um, 
preoccupations with there not being a false way of claiming American values or of practicing Americanness bound to whiteness and white supremacy. Um, and Professor Sharma gave a very um, rich and useful account of love as a non-instrumental way of relating in civic life and among human beings. Um, in the tradition of Martin Buber, of others, in a world of capitalism, of technology that would reduce us to mere what's, love can render us to one another a who. So love remains an important resource for us, whether we're theorizing it, whether we're practicing it. Um, I think that, that I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not felt like pressing with a huge question and I feel like that could be a little undermining of this nice variety. So I might ask people to, to go down and each make a comment about what they incorporated um, or learned as a result of their peers and what they still want to insist upon being heard as a site of divergence. Um, Professor McCutcheon, do you want to go first or are you still ruminating? I, I have no idea what to say. Um, I, I, I think your summary was of mine was accurate, thank you. Um, I think I've been invited here um, not for my views on how the nation ought to be. It's uh, maybe a view that not everyone shares, but I think I've been invited here because of certain credentials I do or don't have, certain things I've written or accomplished or certain things we've done at the University of Alabama perhaps. I think I'm here in a very particular role. I think we all have uh, many very particular roles. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, a fan of the notion of interpolation. I'm a fan of Althusser and identity formation. And I, I fear a rather large mistake is being made if I presume that whatever role I happen to have at this moment is omnirelevant and omnipotent and uh, uh, significant in any situation, any occasion. I think it's a misplacement of authority. Why should anyone care what I think about the nation state? There's all kinds of people who might have opinions on that. Uh, so that's uh, an important uh, self-limitation perhaps. I might be criticized for that. Um, I, I certainly have strong views on how I think the nation ought to work. But I don't think I have those strong views. Uh, I don't think they're credentialed by my diploma from the University of Toronto that helps to credential me and, and put me on this panel. So I think uh, that's all I would want to summarize. I think I was uh, misheard at one point. Uh, towards the end, or somewhere in there, I talked about the estimate I received from AAR staff that approximately 30%, definitely not a majority, of the AAR membership does some kind of, or would be situated in some kind of confessional or theological tradition, only some of them being Christian, others being people of other traditions. So I was simply saying there that uh, those who work in that vein are part of the diversity of AAR and should be included along with those who don't. And so uh, if it should feel like there's a run of one particular uh, approach kind of dominating AAR, that wouldn't be good for anybody. And if it has felt that way, that's unfortunate. Um, I would just say on the other side that I think we saw demonstrated today some very rich reflections on love uh, from a wide variety of perspectives, critical, interrogating the concept, um, showing some constructive value in, in civic life, showing some dangers and great dangers in civic life, 
Um, uh, it was good to hear love functioning uh, in various traditions. I'd love if we, I would love it if we had more, <laughs> more conversations like this at AAR. So uh, it was, I thought it was, I learned a lot. It was a very rich conversation. <clears throat> Um, uh, two, two quick thoughts. One is I couldn't read my own handwriting and so I missed my like end line. Um, <laughs> and I, and I want to, and I want to just say it right. Um, I don't know, this could just be vanity, but, um, I want to find a way to convince them, right, my, my, my people, uh, that they are killing themselves, killing America, killing the future with their love. Um, that, that, was, that was the line. And then that takes you back to hell is the seventh name of this love wherein I suffer. Um, you know, um, so, and, and, and thinking, resonating with that, with that, with that, with that sense. Um, Hadwick in the 13th century obviously meant something very different by that than, than how it's resonating for me at the moment. But the, but the power of that particular theological vision, Christian theological vision, uh, to resonate in our present um, uh, struck me as I was thinking about the comments today. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I take, I, I really take seriously um, Russ um, McCutcheon's point uh, about, you know, what we are credentialed to do um, versus, you know, what our, you know, opinions are as citizens um, and, and where, um, you know, where we draw those kinds of lines. Um, I, I, I think that I, I, one thing I've been hearing a lot of is the sort of bemoaning of, you know, what does, do recent political events mean about um, uh, the academy um, or, or higher education? And I, and, you know, it could mean all sorts of things, you know, monetarily and, 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 and legally and, you know, we don't know. Um, but in terms of the idea um, that the larger population of, of the United States, you know, cares very much about what any of us say, I'm right with you. I mean, not at all, right? Um, uh, but at the same time, I can't separate uh, my credentialing, which is weird, I'm, you know, I, 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 and credentialing, I, I'm not always entirely sure what that means. Um, but, you know, I do have a PhD in theology. Um, which involves a normative component and renders it difficult for me to not think about the normative components of the lives that we're living now and how what I know about the Christian tradition in particular and the sort of post-Christian traditions of the present um, feed into the way I read our current situation. Um, and I don't think it's irresponsible um, to voice that. I actually think it's responsible um, and I think it is demanded. Um, so I think we have a perhaps a pretty deep disagreement about that, but I just wanted to raise it to the surface because um, there it is. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Just, I would just make a few comments quickly. Um, well, I don't feel that I have the luxury, if only I could walk into a classroom and be seen completely for my credentials. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, if only I could run a classroom um, and do a Quran exegesis exercise that I've carefully prepared, which I do do, but um, I have, I teach at a college in which um, I have an interesting combination of anarchists and vets. And, you know, I teach people who got home from Iraq and Afghanistan a couple of months ago. And I'm a very credentialed person, you know, um, but they also see me as a Muslim woman and a Muslim. And that's okay, you know, I've come to accept that. And so this distinction is not a reality for me. 
you know, that, that somehow um, I'm limited to my credentials. And, and so I'm, I'm sort of embraced being a little more holistic that way. It doesn't mean that I run my classroom as a, uh, I don't know, confessional space or, or my own personal therapy session, but they see what they see and I have to own that because it's the reality for me. So um, uh, uh, my job is to educate, my, I consider my job to complicate the Islamic tradition. So um, I, I do what I can to disrupt easy answers. So that's basically, I feel my job, which I'm credentialed to do, I guess. Um, then I wanted to speak to what Amy said about her family. And I wanna say that I actually totally, I, there's a page of my little iPad that disappeared and now it's back. So I wanna <laughs> say that I actually, what I really wanted to say is that I hear completely the humanity of your family. I share your outrage about the New York Times piece and that West Virginia piece. And what I want to challenge us to do is to get beyond the liberal pieties about it. You know, like, oh, I feel so bad about that. Are you willing to actually talk about income inequality? Are you willing to challenge neoliberalism and the, our capitalist system? Are you willing to give up some of your privileges? Like, these are questions that, you know, I feel that we're called to actually really talk about. And, and this is what I mean by that kind of manipulative love where it's like, oh, I feel so, that pity, you know, the pity. Like, we don't need the pity. We need the action, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The last thing that was lost in my last page is I actually had something to say about Muslims in the Muslim community. I mean, another part of my own personal biography is that before I did a PhD, I was working with the American Muslim community after 9-11 in, um, in politics and in, in media. And that's a part of my credentialing and my career that I'm proud of and I think informs my scholarship really well. And um, one thing that uh, happened there was that Muslims basically voted for W. Bush pretty much 50-50 because of social conservative values and then 9-11 happened and then the program I told you about happened and what happened was that it was gay and lesbian groups and the ACLU who stood up for Muslims. <laughs> and so um, really like in huge numbers and very strikingly and so actually one way I want to challenge the Muslim community, Muslim scholars, etc., is to say that the uh, alliance, the solidarity with these types of groups needs to be not only strategic, it needs to be heartfelt, speaking of love, right? Like there needs to be a deepening of that. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a huge challenge for the Muslim community. And I wanted to say that because I, I don't want to be seen as just critiquing, quote, the other from my perspective. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay, I'd like to offer two comments. Uh, one has to do with uh, the remarks offered by Russell on the term love. And uh, of course, uh, Russell has a long history of helping us become self-conscious of the terms we use. Uh, but it did cross my mind while he was making his point that virtually literature all over the world has romantic love as a theme. Does it not suggest that romantic love might be in some sense a universal? And, and along those lines, and further, that there might be an overlapping consensus uh, in terms of the word love uh, as it is used. And so there might be practical ways of dealing with the very serious points Russell had raised. My second point has to do with uh, how the Buddhists look upon the idea of love after lamenting that the, the way it has been used in English. 
and the fact that the Buddhists prefer the word compassion to the word love. And there's only one aspect of the situation. The other, which to me is even more important, that Buddhism insists on the sentiment of love being expressed and our sensibilities in that area being exercised within the framework of wisdom. Now our normal understanding of love is that it does away with these kind of restraints. But the Buddhists insist on that, that if you truly love something or some, somebody even, or some course of action, then it is incumbent on you to act in the wisest possible way as an expression of that love. So I'll leave it at that. If there are those of you that would like to ask a question or point out uh, tension about the, the conversation, you're welcome to come stand at the mic and make yourself heard. I want to include on the ghost on the stage our own Serene Jones because uh, she was careful to qualify how she spoke about love. She was citing, in particular, James Baldwin. I'm going to read the line that she cited. I use the word love here not merely in the personal sense, but as a state of being or a state of grace, not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth. So for the kind of um, abrasion to the concept of love that Baldwin invokes, um, we have to recognize that in Serene Jones as well. Um, anyone want to make a, a comment, ask a question? Go ahead. Yeah. If you Hi. want to ask it of anybody Hello. in particular. Yeah, I just wanted to um, talk to Amy for a minute. My name's Adina. I'm a teacher from Seattle. And um, I was really interested in your statement, I want to help them see or find a way to help them see that they're killing the America that they love with their version of love. Because um, I too have, I, I know a lot of people who have that sort of rah, rah, I love America. And um, I got to watch uh, television this afternoon. I don't have a television at my house, so I was at, at my hotel and I watched a couple episodes of Intervention and um, in this show, Intervention, the interventionist tells the family of the addict, you're killing this person with your love. You're putting a nail in their coffin because um, you know, you're letting them stay in the house and enabling them. And I was really struck by the sort of parallel with uh, what you said about people who love America and they I, I do think many of them equate America with the idea of whiteness and the love of whiteness. And I just wonder if you had any thoughts about, I want to know that. I want to know how can I intervene? How can I make them or help them? Maybe make them is a wrong word. Somehow facilitate an understanding that there might be another way to look at things. It seems to be one of the most uh, pressing and yet challenging uh, problems that I have, yeah. both both academically and personally. Yeah. I just wanted to talk into that, of course. Um, 
I don't. I wish I had an answer to that question, um, and I and and I hesitate over the wording myself because, you know, it's 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 easy to sound, you know. Um, well, it's just really easy to sound patronizing. It's really easy to sound, um, um, you know, uh, uh, like I have some, you know, enlightened knowledge that I'm going to impart to to to, to poor you. Um, and obviously, uh, that is um, as anyone as anyone who's dealt with with alcoholics and other um, uh, substance abusers. Um, who are in fact healing themselves through their behaviors, um, you know, telling them that you can see what they can't see is is super super unhelpful, <laughs> um, uh, and it's and 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 finding the right way to be helpful um, is incredibly demanding, and it's really funny to me. I mean, not funny, haha, but but kind of kismity that you were watching intervention, <laughs> because you know, um, in some sense. You know, I, I think we need. I, I think there there need to be you know n n nationwide interventions on an array of issues. And I, I guess what I'm feeling right now, because of where I'm positioned, um, you know, professionally, um, and because of the danger, because I think it's very important that our institutions respond to the dangers in which many of our students are being put now, have been, have been put, will be, are being put now, and may increasingly be put. Um, and so uh, institutionally, I think it's crucial that, um, that you know, the places that we teach uh, make whatever commitments that they can um, and the strongest commitments possible to protect uh, Muslim students, to protect uh, non undocumented students, to protect those people who are, going, who are most at risk right now. And what's fascinating to me in having the discussions about that is the, on the one hand, recognition, yes, these are populations at risk, but on the other hand, the immediate, but we have to have empathy for the Trump supporters, and that empathy means writing out the racism of their positions. So to me, the intervention now, right now, is with the, with the, with the putative left, um, who is largely refusing among the white left, largely refusing to see what is at stake. So I feel like there's the first level of, of saying to the parents of the alcoholic, letting, letting, letting Tom stay you know, in the house is, 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 is killing him. So that's one level of intervention before you then even get to the level of saying, and now how do I help Tom? Um, you know, or is there a way to help Tom? And so it's that, and this is where I, again, speaks to the humility issue that Russ, I think, rightly brings out. Like, I don't think I can, you know, put the nation in intervention. I don't think I can even put my brother in intervention. <laughs> I'd like to, um, <laughs> you know, and we've done it on some other issues, but, you know, um, with some of my other brothers. But, you know, um, but I do think I can do something about the institution in which I work and in which I have some, you know, degree of influence and some degree of of of, of authority to try to say, can we at least be clear about what's happening and what the implications are for our students and what kinds of things we need to do for our students? And that includes being willing to name what the problem is. So that's my quick answer. Thank you. Sure. Hi. Um, I just wanted to make a, a, a have a little bit of reflection, but it kind of ties in a few different things people say. Um, I teach at a Catholic school in which we had a course that was on the books that I think was taught by a nun for many years 
about love, sex, and marriage, and my colleague Jack Downey and I decided that we needed to radically reapproach this course with two separate courses. Um, he did one where he taught gender trouble in, in red pumps, and, and I taught a course that was called Love in Asian Religion, Literature, and Film, um, in which I looked at works in Buddhist traditions, Confucianism, and, uh, and Hinduism. Um, and it was focused mostly in considering that word love. You know, it was it was um, it was focused a, a lot on gender and sexuality, um, and uh, you know we have these different senses of of kama and bhakti in Hindu traditions, uh, which are interconnected. These devotional love and human love are interconnected in iconography, um, and uh, you don't have a kind of sinfulness associated with sexuality. But at the same time, you don't have a love that is bridging self and other in an erotic sense. Um, and um, uh, Professor Sharma's uh, point about Buddhist tradition and uh, uh, notions of compassion and wisdom being united, um, I think are really closely connected with this different sense of individuality, which going back to the family comment, um, is um, very much how I experience the social in Tibetan communities. Um, there's not, um, there, there's not an emphasis on it on the individual, and there's almost a, an, a lack of understanding of kind of individual, um, the way we understand it typically in American culture. And um, one of my favorite expressions of this in colloquial Tibetan is how you say "I love you" in colloquial Tibetan, um, which is "gagi du," and there's no there are no pronouns in the statement. It is "gawa," which is joy, is. <laughs> That's what you say to someone when you love them. Um, so, um, um, and this is in the context of a community, which in some sense they don't call each, they do actually also use family names, um, you know, uncle and aunt mostly for monastics and things like that. But they, it's, um, it's a community in which um, basic understandings of, of wisdom have to do with there not being a clear boundary between self and other and there being both the sense of, of, of compassion, which is karuna, and also maitri, which is another sense of love in Buddhist traditions, which is loving kindness. And that loving kindness, when I, when I began my course with this term love, I said, you know, let's come up with a definition. And together with the students, we, we decided on the term attention, um, that love is about paying attention. Um, and that is about mindfulness, that is about awareness. So this is something I think both Amy and Sarah you know, called us to notice that this is about um, uh, taking action in relationship to attention. And I think in that sense, you know, um, attention to our own experience and the experience of others in our worlds is helpful. In my own case, I'm a member of the LGBT community that is also in solidarity with Muslims on campus and one of the supporters of Muslims on campus. And, and they're in support of me actually also as a queer uh, person and, you know, we've had discussions and, um, and I find that that personal attention, even in my own family, with my, my family, um, my parents did not, did not vote at the top of the ballot. That was the first time in their lives. But they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Clinton, you know, because of their ideological, from my perspective, confusion. Um, and the way that we actually have been able to speak now is in terms of love. I wrote them a letter and I said, you know, I don't know if you're thinking about me, and of course I'm in a relatively privileged position, but I feel less safe, personally, after this election. And I know other people that I know, you know, feel less safe. And my father wrote back, well, I'm sorry that the media influence has, you know, 
generate this feeling. And I had to say, no, Dad, this is in my life. This is my friend walking down the street in New York City holding hands with her partner um, who hears the comment, um, that ain't going to be happening here no more. Mm -hmm. And that happens with the student on campus, African-American student on campus, who is uh, shoved and, you know, to the tune of Trump, Trump, Trump. And this is my reality. And, you know, uh, and I love you, and I know that you love me. And, uh, and he wrote back, and he said, you know, I, I, you know I, will, I will always stand up for intolerance, and, and I love you. So it's interesting how that term works to help us. And I think, you know, maybe as a larger public, in a larger public sphere, how that sense of family, you know, that was brought up as well, can work to help us in the ways that it does for Tibetans. Thanks so much. Um, well, on behalf of the Committee of the Public Understanding of Religion and our partnership with the AAR, I'm going to ask us to thank our panelists, let them have a little dinner, um, and thank you all for being here on this evening. Thanks so much.